Hey, look who's back. It's Tara. Hi, I'm back. Welcome back from your big adventure at Big Ears. I need to hear all about it. It was wonderful, as it always, always is. Yeah? Yeah. Yes. It was a wonderful time. Always is a wonderful time. Are you exhausted? (laughs) I'm, yeah. I am exhausted. I, I don't walk as much as I do at Big Ears, and so... It was a lot of walking. I got some steps in, learned about some really amazing music, listened to some favorites, of course, um, and some classics. So, yeah. Give me some uh, overall highlights. Who put on the best show? Yeah. Yeah. So Big Ears, it's a bunch of different acts, jazz, experimental, left of the dial type stuff, classical, and it's all broken up into different venues across Knoxville, Tennessee. So I did a bunch of walking and I had to make some choices because the schedules are always overlapping. I really wanted to see Vijay Ayer this year, mm. which Aruj Aftab was playing with. But I chose to not see that because I saw Aruj last, last year. That's right. So that, that's one really tough choice I had to make. And also, Grouper was playing the same time as Pino Palladino. So, and I've seen Grouper before at Big Ears. So I was like, I have to see Pino Palladino. So I did that. Pino Palladino is probably one of the top acts of the entire festival. It was Pino Palladino and Blake Mills, plus Sam Gundel on sax and A Browns on drums. So, so good. And then, Micaiah McRaven playing his 2022 album that I was in my top five Mm -hmm. all the way through. It's such a, such a beautiful album. And so, yeah, that was amazing. You sent me video of that too, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. It looked pretty spectacular. So good. Yeah. And I think this was like, um, 40 years of John Zorn or something like that. And he was at the last, he had a bunch of stuff at the last big years, but this year they did this thing. It was the closing act. John Zorn, and it was called Cobra. And I had no idea what I was going into. But what it was, was just a bunch of musicians improving based on these cards that John Zorn was holding up, almost as a way of directing the improvisation. And I Googled it during the show on my smart device. <laughs> like, what are the rules of this game? But I couldn't right. find, I mean, I think they're out there, but I wanted to pay attention to the show, right? So it wasn't on the wiki. I was like, well, I'll check it out later. But he had made an intentional choice to not publish the rules of these of this game, this improvisational game. Um, but it was really wild. It was really it looked like baseball, but for experimental improvisation. Okay, I thought I had a picture in my head, but you completely threw me off with the word baseball. That sounds crazy. It was weird. Yeah, he would hold up these cards that you we couldn't see from the audience. We could just see the back of the card. They mm-hmm. were different colors. And then, you know, at certain points, depending on whatever card he would hold up, you would see certain musicians pointing at other musicians, like they were assigning parts to them or something. So it was like instrumental twister, kind of. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It was crazy. But yeah, fun times. It was really cool. Wow. But now I'm back. And I'm sick. I don't feel good. Well, that's to be expected when you're like surrounded by super dense crowds of people for extended periods of time. That's like your badge of honor is the the ick, the post-festival ick you bring home, right? Yes, but hopefully I'm not 
contagious uh, and bringing germs to you in mm. the store. I will keep my distance. You stay over there. <laughs> All right. So now that you're back in the store, why don't we like just do a good old fashioned album of the month? I haven't seen you in a while and been going through my dis- old discs and albums and things and oh, dug up some favorites. What do you think? Yeah, no, that sounds great. So, you know, we always do album of the month every month and we always share our albums ahead of time so that we we can listen to them before we do our in-store chat. And you told me your album, Julia Holter's record Aviary mm-hmm. from 2018. And when I was listening to it, I couldn't help but think this is something that I would hear at Big Ears. Oh, for sure. Has she played at Big Ears? It's a highly yeah. Likely. I think she has. She has definitely. And I feel like either no, yeah. So I saw her first at Big Ears. I can't remember which year it was. Definitely pre twenty fifteen. Maybe maybe it was twenty fourteen. And I never really heard anything from her before. But her live show felt very Broadway ish to me. Mm. So I really didn't enjoy it too much. But then I saw her later at Pitchfork and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And her her 2015 album, Have You My Wilderness, is my favorite of hers now. My first thought was there on so many days of bread in Mexico City. Yeah, I like that as well. Yeah, she switches up her styles pretty distinctly from album to album, you know. But yeah, let's let's talk about Aviary. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, this one just seemed far more experimental than that one, which seemed yeah. very much Big Ears-esque. I think this one is probably her her most experimental, most avant-garde album ever. I can't feel this way at night. There's a green the blue. And it's amazing, and I'm glad she went there. I think it was absolutely worth it. She's cool. She's like one of these artists where it's clear that they are on like a personal creative journey. You know, they're not trying to perfect some formula or like stay in one lane that's most comfortable or profitable. They're just exploring new territory with every single project. You know, I like that about her. You can definitely hear the progression from album to album and how much she pushes herself. Either she's growing or she's pushing herself to just try different things. But this one for sure is, it's incredible. Yeah. So this is her fifth studio album released in 2018 on Domino. And like you mentioned, a complete departure from the albums that preceded it. The title Aviary is a reference to a story by Lebanese-American poet Atel Adnan, which has a line that says, I found myself in an aviary of shrieking birds. And so in many of her interviews, particularly in Billboard, Holter says that Adnan's stories paralleled how she'd been feeling, especially like around memory. And memory is a major theme in this album and like the way that memories can stalk you. She says, quote, Memories that emerge in the mind that get in the way of your own thoughts. I started noticing there was wings, imagery, birds. I was invoking that, that feeling of the physical presence of memory. Just like birds can be beautiful, memory can be beautiful, but birds can also be terrifying and shrieking, which is so true. <laughs> and I think it's a really a beautiful metaphor for this album too. Yeah, I was going to say, even sound-wise, that the album they ha- it has moments that are just really beautiful and all- also moments that are kind of scary. 
Oh yeah. It's just, it's just full of, it's got all the feels in it. You know, nothing is off limits. It's just all the feels. Um, she talks a lot about wanting it to be more about sound and like using language as like a function of sound and playing around with language. Um, and you really get that sense in this album as well. She also talks about listening a lot to uh, the Blade Runner, original Blade Runner soundtrack by Vangelis, which is wow. always, right, always a great thing to dig into when you want to be creative. She's got like lots of 13th century, medieval, classical, and Tibetan chanting references throughout the album as well. So a lot going on. It's very dense. It's quite long at a solid 90 minutes. So um, I'm just going to highlight a few of my faves. With that said, there are no skips for me on this album, really. It's like a, I just said it and forget it, like a Ron Popeil rotisserie. And uh, <laughs> I think it's a pretty rad experience from top to bottom. Yeah, I mean, even though... Like you said, it's it's a departure from her previous albums. I still found those moments that I really love from Have You in My Wilderness on this album as well. Like she's pushing herself away from this broadcast wise blood vibes that I love mm. about her. Not to compare her to other women in her field, but those are women that I love. And so I love those their music and, and her music. And then is She's kind of going more towards, well, not exactly, but there's like an in-between Jenny Haval moment too. And so I still hear those moments on this record aside from the experimental things. Yeah, so right I have favorites, but I, I, I'm with you on the no skips, except for towards the end, I do kind of zone out for sure. All right, well, let's dig in. So number one, we have Turn the Light On. You! It's a really bold way. So Holter says this is the happiest song she's ever recorded. The band and the strings are just anchored on that A flat in the bass. And then they just go wild up and down that major scale. It's it's really, really awesome. Just ecstatic and big, you know, and expansive. My favorite part is toward the end when she slowly wails up the scale and it like all crescendos with her and it gets somehow even more chaotic, but in a really like beautiful way. Yeah. I put in my notes, uh, grandiose kind of goes along with that big stuff you're talking about. It's just, it's very spacious, right? Yeah. Whatever treatment is on her vocals here, it kind of does make her, it's it's like you're in an arena. It's big amphitheater vocals, you know, and also I like a big rock finish sometimes. And this feels like a big rock finish in the beginning of a record, right. not at the end. <laughs> so I like that it's like the big rock finish, uh, kind of just like crazy. Right from the top. Yeah. Right absolutely. from the top. Domino shared an official film for this album on YouTube, actually. It's it's quite short, under 10 minutes. Whoa. But Holter explains how this record is intended to be an exploration of cathartic sounds, sounds to get lost in through frustration and confusion. And she wanted to prioritize the experience of sound over language, like I said. And I think this track is a really great introduction to that concept. Yeah. And even tying it back to the name of the album and what you were speaking to earlier, aviary, like the cacophony of bird sounds. There's no bird sound. I mean, maybe there are bird sounds. I didn't notice them. But if you were in a cage and you heard a cacophony <laughs> a of bird sounds all around you. I feel like this could represent that a little bit. I would I would take away the cage though. I think it's like being caught in a swirl of, it's like the beauty and the terror of seeing a giant whirlwind of birds nearby. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, it is more like that for sure. Definitely. That's what it sounds like for sure. So on to number two, it's called Weather. So this is the first song I heard from this album, completely detached from the album itself. I, I don't know how I even stumbled upon it, but it definitely caught my attention. And I had no idea what I was in for with the rest of this album because this one is quite different from the other tracks, I think. It's like one of the poppier, definitely like the catchiest, most yeah. upbeat tune, you know? Mm-hmm. And I have a thing for quirky driving four to the floor kind of rhythms. Let's listen to a clip. Win, win. Yeah, this is one of my faves. Yeah, and this one is one of those that feels like a song from one of from that record that I really love. Mm, yeah. From 2015. And also is one of those that has like a broadcast or melodies echo chamber type vibe. Mm-hmm. There's a psychedelic feel to it, almost a retro futuristic feel as well. And another big rock finish on this one. <laughs> yes, right. She's big on those like really dramatic finishers, right? Yeah. The next two tracks. Hyatus and Vocesimol are both really beautiful, very dreamy, more avant-garde songs. Here's a bit of Vocesimol. So this one's just very atmospheric. It transports you. And the climax of this track is really great too with the chanting voices. It's just, you just get really like lost in it. I love this track a lot. That third song, Kytius, I wrote Chamber Core. And when I first started listening to it, I was like, oh, there's a little Italian in there and English. And then I did a little more digging and found out that it was old Occitan. Yeah. It's language used by troubadours in southern France during the Middle Ages. And this is where I started to see those medieval Middle Ages uh, themes showing up. I thought it was really cool. I was like, wow, she yeah, was is like super digging cool. in. Oh, yeah. I think her parents are both historians. So she's always been oh. like really fascinated and interested in this, you know, wow. period of history. Yeah. That's cool. I did not know that. I saw on, apparently she tweeted this during a Tim's Twitter listening party, which if you haven't ever checked one of those out, you totally should. It's Tim Burgress from the Charlatans has this thing on Twitter. You use the hashtag Tim's Twitter listening party and basically... It's like you're listening to an entire album with friends, but on Twitter. I'm kind of, I'm I'm hiding from Twitter right now. I'm very angry <laughs> with Twitter. I'm not supporting right now, but mm-hmm. Julia Holter apparently did a Tim's Twitter listening party for this album because for that same third track, Kytius, Ky- I have no idea how I'm pronouncing that, but whatever. There's a line in that song that says, the bananas are getting yellow. And she said, I said to Tashi one day. I'm not sure who Tashi is, but the bananas are getting yellow because we have a banana tree and we had to pick them. So I think he told me to put them in the song, but he was joking, but I did. I think it was a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that was funny. I mean, amongst all of these cool middle-agey things, she, she, she added a little Easter egg. Yeah, that's cool. Folks talk about the next track, Every Day is an Emergency, as being probably the most challenging track on the album. It's got like this four minute long bagpipe opening section. And if I were going to skip something, if I'm not distracted doing something else, it can kind of get a bit grating, I think. It sounds like a bunch of noisemakers at a hostile birthday party, you know? It does. I I said in my notes that it felt like a fever dream. 
at first, but it totally changes. The song it does. totally changes. Halfway through, completely changes. Very like chill. It's got this like kind of chanting and this repeating musical motif. And then it's like calm and really pleasant, actually. Yeah, but you, it's like you have to suffer to get to that moment. <laughs> she makes you pay. Yeah, you got to pay the price. She does that a lot, though. They're, uh, she'll completely switch gears in, in the middle of the song multiple mm-hmm. times. So you you got to hang in there because it's, it's, it's worth it. It's a ride. It's an experience. I don't know why, but in the beginning of this song, when it's that crazy, just kind of weird, anxiety-inducing part, I thought of that awful movie, Solo. Have you seen that movie? No. It's from the Criterion Collection, but it's very disturbing. There's a part where people eat their own number twos. I was going to say, I'm so scared of how you're going to end that sentence. (laughs) Uh, Great. That is an awesome advertisement for that film. Oh, I'm reading. Oh, this sounds terrible. I don't want to watch this at all. It's very dark. It's It's really, it's, there's a lot of like Italian bourgeoisie and just like social creepy things and I think there's a lot of political underlying themes and anyways just the the anxiety that movie also induces on top of the sounds of the beginning of this song every day is an emergency I think that's why I, I, I linked the two for whatever reason mm. but Salo. the end of the song definitely I mean it turns a corner and it becomes this beautiful and soft but kind of dark then with dark um like parts I don't know it's yeah. interesting does Salo, does that movie have a happy ending like the song I don't does? Remember. <laughs> you blocked I think it out I've of your blocked mind. It. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're traumatized. Okay, fair. All right. So I do want to mention track seven here called I Shall Love Two. It's the first single. I think this is the most approachable song on the album. It's got that sweet vocal refrain and really pretty melody. And again, it like whips up into this big chorus of I shall love and it gets really ecstatic and like maybe a twinge of panic in there too. Like she's really good at that. She's really good at lacing just a little bit of, eh, you know, feeling a little off. Something Something's going to happen. Something's afoot. There's like a part where the key bends slightly when everyone's singing. There's just something really unsettling and the music happens. It's just like this one bend and one note. And I just can't, it gets me every time, you know? You're on the brink of losing control, but in the best way. Yeah, this one's my favorite, I think, of the entire album. Yeah, it's really good. And what a great single to have, right? Oh, yeah. I'm surprised that this one is the single and not the second track, honestly, but yeah, I think it's it's really good. I also wonder, like, would the second track have been more popular as a single? It might have been like more popular, more- but I think this track is a better bridge to what the album is going to be. That's true. Do you know what I mean? That's very true. Yeah. There's a lot of little pieces in this song that I dug into just because I loved it so much. I, I love the approach on the lyrics with this one, there's a part where she says, why do you squander? Why do you hoard? Why do you squander? Why do you hoard? And apparently in Dante's Inferno, the author describes two opposing groups, the squanderers and the hoarders. Mm -hmm. And they're fighting against each other in the fourth circle of hell. They're depicted as yelling at each other. Why do you hoard? Why do you squander? And um, interpretations of that section, it's, it's like a focus of their material indulgence, whether it's like from excessive spending or accumulating material goods that causes that conflict or whatever that they're engaging in. But um, Holter, while material indulgence is like, you know, 
why squander, why hoard? She says in another line, in all the human errors, there's something true. It's like the truth, she's saying that truth might be indulgence, but in love rather than the material. Mm-hmm. And apparently, I, I think she might have said this in an interview. I, I found it on Genius Lyrics, which I thought was very interesting. But accepting this, she allows herself to follow her love. She shall love. And so then it goes into a whole thing. And I just, that's just so brilliant and thought through in yeah. such a creative and just really thoughtful way. I just, it's perfect. Yeah. Even though <laughs> I could never write like that, honestly. She's having a laugh most of the time with language and just kind of playing around with it here and there. She she sticks gems like this in there that are just very, very thoughtful and very yeah. meaningful. Yeah, it's great. It's just like through it all, this I shall love. And I, she gets right into it too, like early yeah. on in the song. And then that's like most most of the track. It's great. Towards the end, it starts to have this like beautiful expanse of song. And it reminds me a lot of that song by John Cale, Perfect Day. Hmm. Such a perfect day. And then it just like builds and builds and builds. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. And then uh, apparently someone said that it was like an unlikely predecessor of space rock romanticism of spiritualized, which I thought was a really interesting Mm. comparison. Hmm. That's all I'll say about that song. But yeah. Yeah, really good song. Okay, so the next track, track eight, is another one of my favorites, Underneath the Moon. I love this one. It's dancier, it's wild, it's cathartic. Um, There's a line in this song that says, dance with us to the Saint Vitus down the hall. So... Fun fact about that, the song was inspired by St. Vitus's dance, which was a dancing mania that occurred in 14th to 17th century Europe, where huge groups of people, like up to a thousand people, would break out in uncontrollable dancing, shouting, and like full-on hallucinations until they just collapsed from exhaustion. Um, today, it's it's the name of a disorder that's manifested from childhood rheumatic fever and is characterized by involuntary movement and rapid jerking motions. In Q Magazine, Holter says, quote, it's a little bit silly to have a song about that, but it's also about letting yourself go in this almost violent way. Mission accomplished on that one, because that's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. But it's great. It's got this cool like 70s folk psych rock kind of vibe, you know, kind of like... A little bat for lashes I hear in there, or like some old Imogen heap a little bit, but it's just it's just a lot of fun and it's a dance. It's definitely a dance song. Yeah. I I again she she is it makes sense that her parents are historians. Like I love these references that she's putting in there, and I also love a good ode to dancing. Oh, for sure. I need that. So next track is Collagere. This is another favorite of mine. I just love the strings here. Strings are really beautiful, very classical, and her vocal delivery is is interesting as well, unlike the other tracks. And then I'm, I said I was going to just name a few of my faves, but I've almost talked about every single track on the album. Yeah, that's how good it is. But let's let's go to the penultimate track. We get a, a reprise of that "I Shall Love" chorus. The track is called "I Shall Love One," and it's again, it just starts right in on that chorus that's so liberated and joyous. And I really love that she brings that back at the end of the album because the impression is so strong the first time you hear it. 
But then like inevitably these other interesting, pretty, or maybe even a little like scary birds fly and shriek in front of you and you're watching them and contemplating all these different things. But in the end, you come back and reinforce that proclamation to just love through it all, which I think is what she's saying in the end, you know? Yeah. I really, really love track 12, actually. Is that Le Jou to You? It like kicks into this really fun yeah, section. Yeah, to You. But I like how the one line is tells you to be better listeners. So we should be better listeners. And Pitchfork says that it's it recalls Kate Bush um, and is one song on Aviary where she makes her lyrics very reminiscent of like a Gertrude Stein poem sound like an IMAX movie. And I thought that was a really <laughs> interesting funny. note. And then, but for me, I, I thought, oh, this sounds like Jenny Haval to me. But then it kicks into that sort of fun part and it turns into more of like a Kate and V um, song. Yeah, you, I hear a lot of a lot of Kate Bush going through this album for sure. Yeah, that, you know what? I've, she, her live performance of this song is amazing because it's I listened to this album like and I know she toured it really hard and I'm like how on earth did she recreate this experience on the road but man she she did it and I've seen like a couple videos of different performances of this particular track that I think rival the album even it's really really wild does she have strings on tour with her when she did this or because when I saw her the two times I saw her she had mostly just a, a small backing band and her keyboard yeah I don't know how she pulls it off it's it's spectacular. Huh. She had I, she definitely had like horns in there, but yeah, she she made it happen on the road, and it seemed like a really intimate and amazing experience. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's Aviary. I really love those moments. There's some moments in this album where she it's just her voice. There's one in particular, super minimal in Garden's muteness, just like these really simple ballads. That's just her voice and maybe a piano. There was another one though. Oh yeah, it was track three. Man, track three really struck my fancy. Yeah, that's it's beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of like these super minimal parts, just her voice and they're kind of echoing in your ears. Mm-hmm. Truly a work of art, this album. It is. She's really good at manipulating her voice to get different effects. Like, of course she's using engineering like different effects, but even just her delivery, she's very intentionally changing up the way her voice sounds, you know? Yeah. It's like she's more than a singer. She's a vocalist. <laughs> Bobby McFerrin. Yeah, she's no, she's it's it's fascinating. So yeah, awesome album. 90 minutes, so you know, dig in because it's a it's a ride. But um yeah. I think it's my favorite album from her for sure that I keep going back to. Definitely one that you'd want to put on some noise cancellation, uh earplugs, yeah. headphones, and just really zone out and enjoy it. Because sure. it is it is in its entirety a work of art that should be consumed in full, I would Absolutely. say. Absolutely. All right. I'm handing it over to you. Speaking of big ears artists, this year I did see famous bluesy rock guitar singer songwriter Ricky Lee Jones and I thought man I would love to see Bonnie Raitt here one day I have seen Bonnie Raitt before but I think she also deserves a spot 
a big years for her folk and blues and jazz um, influences and just how she's she's written so many wonderful songs. But I also was just thinking recently about how in February 2023, she won Song of the Year with her song Just Like That. And I saw a bunch of young folks online saying blasphemous things such as, who the hell is Bonnie Raitt? Oh, <laughs> Why it. did she win this? Oh, Why come on. Would- why did they give her this to her? I'm just like, yeah, it, it made me sad. It made me sad that, number one, that people just either they didn't know who she was, they didn't get, they didn't appreciate that she was a legend and was awarded for this really amazing song that she wrote, but that she deserved that award more than anyone listed in the nominations that this past year, or that was this year in February. But that song too, just like that, is tells a story of an emotional encounter between a woman and a man for kind of an unexpected reason. The woman's at her home, this guy knocks on her door looking for her, and then we learn that the woman lost her son some years before, and towards the end of the song, discover that the man received her son's heart after his death. Therefore, he's alive because of this precious donation, and hmm. he thanks her for giving life to them both. And so it's just a really moving song, and I got to hear it live without even knowing this is going to be a Grammy-winning song. Oh, wow. Just, yeah, crazy. But I don't want to just talk about that song. Uh, I wanted to highlight one of my favorite albums from Bonnie, and that is her debut album from 1971, self-titled, Bonnie Raitt. Women be wise, keep your mouth shut, don't advertise your name. This record is kind of evidence of who she is and where she started, so I also wanted to speak a little bit to that because it helps us to really understand her debut album a little more. So her mom is Marge Goddard, and she was a pianist. And her dad is John Raitt, who was a famous actor in musicals like Oklahoma, for one. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, No big deal, just Oklahoma, one of (laughs) the greatest musicals of all time. And The Pajama Game, which I'm not familiar with that one. But from a young age, she and her brothers were encouraged to to play music and learn to play music. And she initially started playing piano, but she was kind of intimidated by her own mother's amazing skills. So she instead started playing this Stella guitar, which she got as a Christmas gift when she was eight years old. And she didn't take, she didn't even take lessons. She just started being influenced by folk music revival of the 1950s. And then she went to this camp and uh, learned some stuff, but she there saw that she was like, oh, I'm, I'm probably a little special here. And she later on was a lead singer in a college campus music group called Revolutionary Music Collective. And they played for striking Harvard students during the student strike of 1970. But in that summer of 1970, she was playing with her brother, David, He was on stand-up bass and Mississippi Fred McDowell at the Philadelphia Folk Festival, opening for John Hammond at the Gaslight Cafe. And uh, a reporter saw her, a reporter from Newsweek, and began to spread the word about her. And so then major record companies were 
going to her shows and checking her out. And she got signed. She got an offer from Warner Brothers and they released her debut album. But yeah, and it was warmly received by the press and the critics. And they praised her skills as uh, a bottleneck guitarist and few women in popular music had such great reputations as guitarists at the time. So big ups, Bonnie Raitt. Yeah, really. Yeah, she's... She was certified by the the blues greats too. She was legit. Oh. And she was in the club. Yeah. So this debut album is quite an assortment of songs and you get a taste of Bonnie's own music writing abilities, but she covers a lot of her influences and of the time, but also of her career. And like you mentioned, a lot of the greats really respected her and she loved them and um, was able to actually play on stage with a couple of them that were still alive at the time. But inevitably you get a history lesson when you listen to this debut album or if you're reading about it, which is really cool. And it's just wild to me that she was only 21 years old when this album was released. So let's dive in now that we have a little bit of background. Okay. First track, Bluebird, is actually a Buffalo Springfield cover. One of my favorite Buffalo Springfield songs. Listen to my bluebird laugh. She can't tell you why. It's written by Stephen Stills of Buffalo Springfield and Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young. But let's hear a little bit of that. She definitely puts a little bit of her own bluesy spin on it, but it's a really good rendition, I think, and it stays true to their original enough, but also she just kind of makes it hers. So then we move to the next track, Mighty Tight Woman. Ask if you don't have nobody, won't you kindly take me, This is another cover, but this time it's a rendition of American blues singer, pianist, and songwriter Sippy Wallace's song, Mighty Tight Woman. And in 1966, uh, Sippy Wallace recorded an album called Women Be Wise and had this song on it. And uh, it was with Roosevelt Sykes and Little Brother Montgomery on piano. And this album really inspired Bonnie to take up singing and playing blues in the late 1960s. So this song, as well as the last song, Women Be Wise, were both included on on this debut album, which I think is really, uh, it just shows how much she was inspired by this amazing blues uh, woman. Yeah, she's great. The Texas Nightingale, Sippy Wallace. Yeah. I didn't realize, I didn't realize it was released in the 60s. I thought it came out much earlier. I don't know why, th- why I thought she was recording like as early as the, the 20s. Yeah, probably the song did, but this was just from an album that Wallace recorded with Roosevelt and Little Brother Montgomery right, in okay, 1960. Yeah. So it probably, this was just that, I think this is the particular one that inspired right. Bonnie. Yeah, I love the song. Oh, yeah. Very classic bluesy groove. And I love the yeah. lyrics, you know, there's like, yeah. I love these strong, powerful woman lyrics and they still have so much wit, you know. She's got a couple yeah. of punchlines in there too. Um, it's a great yeah. song. Good choice. Yeah, it's really great. All right. And number three is my fav- favorite track from this album. It's the hit. It's also like top five most played on all the streaming platforms. I've, I have obsessed over this 
track, which is why I think that this album was probably my favorite Bonnie Ray album just because of this song. I love it so much. Sitting here thinking, baby, about you. I'm wondering how I ever got through my life without you. Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, it reminds me of a Carol King song, kind of. And this is Bonnie's own writing and it's just a lovely song about appreciation and it has just the right amount of flute yeah just the right amount of flute <laughs> just the just a smattering of flute uh yes <laughs> i hear the carol king another thing every time i hear this song just for like the first two seconds the guitar it reminds me of uh shaka khan's sweet thing the way it starts oh. every time i hear this song i'm like oh it's shaka khan. Oh, okay it's bonnie Raitt. still cool still cool but I thought it was Shaka Khan. Both amazing women. Yeah. yeah. Love that. That's funny. I almost think we could go through all of these songs because there's something to say about all of them. Number four, Finest Love and Man, is Super Grady Blues song with mad harmonica solo from legend Junior Wells, who's playing all across this album. But in case you don't know anything about Junior Wells, he played with lots of the greats like Muddy Waters, Earl Hooker, Buddy Guy, and even toured with the Rolling Stones. So serious. Bonnie Raitt wrote this one as well, and I think it hits all the marks of a classic blues song. It's, it's, it's a good one. Nice. All right, Any Day Woman, track five. Love so hard to take when you have to fake everything in return. This is a Paul Seibel cover. I had never heard of him. Love so hard to take when you have to fake everything in return. But apparently he came up in Greenwich Village in New York as a folk singer that had like a country tinge. And he was compared a lot to Bob Dylan. He had a collection of songs with this other folk multi-instrumentalist named David Bromberg. And this record company, Electra, just the sole record company, Electra found out about this collection of songs and signed him just to get this album released. But it's called Wood Smoke and Oranges. And I think that's a classic that we should probably all be revisiting. I just learned about it. But apparently... The greats have covered him. Uh, Bonnie, obviously, because this song is a cover. Linda Ronstadt, Emmylou Harris, Waylon Jennings. But somehow he remained widely unknown to the wider or the, the public. And he was a baker in New York until he passed away in 2022. Oh, wow. So not that long ago. But I find Bonnie's version of this song to be a little bit smoother than his. and has like almost like a feminine touch. For one thing, she brings the tempo down a bit, so it's a little like kind of kind of sultry, right? It's sultry. Yeah. <laughs> it's like late yeah. night in the bar in the, the jazz club. Everyone's kind of sweaty, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can hear that for sure. You know, and I think she kind of does that too with Mighty Tight Woman. How you know, Sippy is a little bit grittier, and Bonnie has a little bit more of a like a sultry voice, a different kind of voice. So she, she, she always puts her spin on it, which I think is, is cool. Cause she's like, loves these people and their music so much. She would never want to just like straight copy it, but just like get, pay homage to them, you know? Yeah. I mean, and it's like really, it's brave too for her to take like these classic songs and like yeah. feel empowered enough to kind of give them her own spin. I mean, the thing I love most about Bonnie Raitt is she never sounds like she's trying too hard. You know, it's almost like I can see her singing while just lounging with a glass of wine and it's just effortless. It's like she's, it's yeah. like she's talking to you in melody. 
Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, she looks like that on stage too. When I saw her, I, she's just standing there or sitting there so still and just, she does make it look effortless. Like, mm-hmm. a, like you know, she's very like it's cool. the easiest thing to oh, play yeah. these crazy bluesy solos. Also, I just want to say, I said that Paul was a baker in New York until he recently passed away. I don't know if he was a baker in New York. He was a baker. I don't know if it was in New York, Somewhere. but he was originally, he was discovered in New York, in the but he was a Baker, baking happened. Yes. Okay. He was baking until his death. <laughs> but yeah, so moving on to track six, Big Road. This one is interesting to me a lot. So. This is a Tommy Johnson cover. Tommy Johnson was an American Delta blues singer. And Johnson's recordings made him sort of this like premier Delta blues singer of his day. He had a crazy powerful voice that could go from this growl to a falsetto sound. And he he was also a really good guitarist. His style of singing actually influenced later singers like Howlin' Wolf, And Hank Williams. So, I mean, Mm. wow. You are influencing people who are just legends in in their own right. So this part is really interesting. So to enhance his fame, Tommy Johnson cultivated this sinister persona. According to his brother Liddell, he claimed to have sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads in exchange for his mastery of the guitar. I always heard that story associated with Robert Johnson, but it's actually Tommy Johnson who this story is actually related to. Yes. And of course, Wikipedia says, so. it must be true. Um, (laughs) Says this story was later associated with Robert Johnson to whom Tommy Johnson was not related. Tommy's version of this song that Bonnie covers on this album is called Big Road Blues. But Bonnie puts... I think more of a boogie spin on this song and you can hear bouncing drums and just this like fun tuba bouncing along with the drums. And then this Junior Wells harmonica floating across these bouncing parts. I I love it. It's great. I love this track because it's kind of odd and quirky, you know? Yeah. Like I can hear that, that, you know, blues groove reference all the way in there, but then there's this like sideshow lilt like a circus <laughs> yeah. circus procession that makes it feel, yeah, yeah. It makes it feel entirely yeah. different. Yeah, I dig it. We got to shout out Daniel Freebo Friedberg, who went for it on the tuba on Big Road. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but he ended up playing on a bunch of Bonnie Raitt's albums. So shout out Freebo. Have you ever tried to play a tuba or like any kind of horn? <laughs> Just random question. Have yeah. I? Have you? Yes, I, I actually, so... I don't remember if I've told this story in the store, but I recently accidentally received a flute in the mail. Really? From Amazon. I ordered dog cough medicine because my dog, poor thing, got kennel cough from going to daycare. And the package arrived. I was like, this is not the right. It was, you know, long flute-shaped box. and it, But it said pet, like eco pet, or I don't know, some pet brand on the label. But- opened it up and it was a flute. It was like a $200 flute from Amazon. I tried to return. I tried to start a return, but because it was a medicine, it said it was unavailable. That is ridiculous. I know. I was like, if only now Amazon could just accidentally deliver a trumpet 
it's so crazy. I'd be so excited. Actually, I kept saying that at Big Ears the whole time. If I could accidentally get a saxophone delivered to my house, it would be over. I mean, that's cool for you as a musician, but that yeah. could have been really sucky. Like, what if your dog was in a really tough spot and you're like, oh, the medicine's oh, no. finally here. It is a flute. How livid would you be? Well, anyway. I was able to get the medicine next day. Okay, good. For my what dog. A random mix up. Yeah. That's, that's insane. So I was blessed. So, but like the lung, the lung capacity required to get any kind of sound out of those things, like even a saxophone. Have you tried to play a freaking saxophone? It's, I mean, it's I played clarinet in high school. So, yes. Okay, I, I also can't. played bassoon and oboe. <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. So you're all, but, you're all over it. But yeah, I always wanted to play trumpet too. You can only choose one path when you're in high school. <laughs> but yeah, and on top of just the lung capacity, you have to think about the embouchure of your lips and how you're getting mm-hmm. the right pitch by buzzing appropriately in the mouthpiece. And so with a tuba, it's more of a like blubber than a buzz, depending on the pitch of the note. And yeah, it's I can, I can only make fart sounds. The horn is not <laughs> for me. So much respect again to the tuba player. Yeah, yeah. Frito, free bow, sorry, free bow. But on this one from Bonnie, I think you can hear her youthful voice and it's sweet, but her bottleneck guitar solo shows her expertise. I mean, she's advanced. Oh, yeah. All right, moving on. Speaking of Johnson's, Robert Johnson, he actually did this next song, Walking Blues. Um, I just wanted to call that out. And then we'll jump ahead to track eight, which is Danger Heartbreak Ahead. This one is really fun because it's actually a Marvelettes cover. And you can hear the Motown call and response in there. You can hear the Motown vibes from it, but still Bonnie kept her true to herself and made it kind of a bluesy blend of rock and soul. And yeah, it's a great one. One thing I did not mention earlier is that this album was recorded live on a four-track recorder. And really? I think... Yeah, it's crazy. So most streaming services now have this 2008 remastered version, so it doesn't sound so bad. But like, I think on this one, you can tell for sure. Some of the levels are weird. Yeah, and wasn't it recorded in like a like a shed almost? Yes, by the lake. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, so that one's a fun. That's legit. Fun one. Mm-hmm. I love too the lyrics of the songs. Like, hey girl, watch out for that sign. You know, you don't want to mm-hmm. be surprised. Number nine, Since I Fell For You. Oh, I love this one so much. Yeah. But Since I Fell For You is a blues ballad actually composed by, uh, yet again, another Johnson buddy, uh, but is popularized by his sister, Ella. Mm-hmm. And another version was recorded by some other folks in late 1940s, but it kind of pushed it into jazz standard territory. And it's been covered a bunch, but... Charlie Rich has covered it, and so has Al Jarreau. And I, yeah, I was gonna say, I re- I remember the Al Jarreau version. Yeah, she's yeah. so good. Yeah, it is. A, I feel like her voice is just the sweetest on this track. Her voice is yeah. so pretty on this track. It's so pretty. Yeah. yeah, it's jazzy. It's bluesy. Her voice really shines here, and I think she's showing that she's more than just a blues guitarist. She's she's already flexed her songwriting skills on Thank You, but. This one, she's like, look, I'm also a really good singer. Mm-hmm. So it's a good one. She's got guts. 
Miss Bonnie Raitt. She does. So last two are very bluesy. I Ain't Blue is actually Willie Murphy, who is a producer of this album. It's his song, and I, I love the guitar on this. She's so groovy. So groovy. She really is. And like she does yeah. those, those leaps with her voice. She can get up to that higher vocal register. It just sounds smooth as butter. Yeah. Just like yeah. not, just not a trouble, not a challenge for her yeah. at all. She just hops up yeah. there. It's crazy. <sighs> yeah. And then we have that last Sippy Wallace song, Women Be Wise. So yeah, I think I love how this debut album from legend Bonnie Raitt shows so much range and, and also pays homage to the people that really inspired her to do what she's still doing today. And yeah, I just think it's a classic. Absolutely. Real longevity, man. She's still, she's still at it and she's still yeah. awesome. Still relevant, too. Yeah, absolutely. What's our connective tissue here? What's our connective tissue? Maybe it's this like tie tie to history because Bonnie does good take one. it back. So does Julia. That's a good one. Also like just sheer tenacity and just kind of following your own North Star creatively and doing the music yeah. that you want to do, you know? That's true. Because yeah. I'm sure they're like... Who like who knows what it would have been like for a young Bonnie Raitt breaking into this genre? You know, I'm sure she probably got a lot of side eyes, and you know, she probably she had to prove herself, and she just wasn't thwarted in any way. You know, very courageous woman. It probably didn't. It didn't have to take much. I think no, it she, didn't take much. She, yeah, but it had to be intimidating to like stand up to these kind of legendary established artists and like you know be this woman who maybe didn't look the part and be like, no, mm -hmm. I got the chops. Check this out. Boom. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so, I respect definitely. that. We did well, it. Another did album it. of the month in the bag. I learned so much from both of yeah. them, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I like this. Maybe that's another tie-in is just that like, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in both of these albums. History lessons, lessons about language and poetry and literature and then blues and I don't know. Yeah, covered, <laughs> we spanned a lot with these two albums. We did. <laughs> Yeah. Well, till next time, I guess. Yeah. I hope you shake off the rest of that ick, that post-festival ick. Thank you. I do as well. Yeah. Get some rest. <laughs> Should we close up now? Yes, let's do. Okay. Let's close up. Happy trails. Thanks for yeah. shopping. See you all next time. Bye. Bye. Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society.